Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Um, let's see here. I've got to keep my eye on the clock. Um, you might find this hard to believe. I'm actually a little bit more long-winded than my dad is, so <laughs> I have to keep a little bit closer <laughs> on the clock. But um, before I get into my message, I do want to thank you all. Um, most of you all know that our time here has actually been um, a lot longer than we expected it to be. And God knew that. And so I am perfectly confident and perfectly happy that he knew we needed to be here um, about a year longer than we expected to be. And in that time, this church has been a blessing. Um, our children have been involved, been able to grow um, by stepping up and, and taking different roles in this church. God has allowed me to teach and speak and Diane and I to sing and Diane's worked in children's and done all kinds of stuff. And so it's been a huge blessing. And we have been very, very grateful um, for our time here. And we will be back. I mean, the kids are going to want to see their grandparents again. So please. <laughs> just, just because the grandparents, you know, Gigi, that's what they call my mom. Gigi always has this little basket of junk food on the counter in her kitchen. The kids are going to want to come back and visit the basket of junk food. So we will. So this is not goodbye. It's just so long for now. Um, anyway, um, Acts chapter 19, um, as you see there in the title, the, Christianity is dangerous. Now, man, that, Keith, that, that's, that's wow. That is such an encouraging title. Way to go. Way to be encouraging on your way out the door. Um, but honestly, there is a, a very distinct point. Um, I actually read a devotional on this topic a few weeks ago, and so I've kind of expanded it into, um, uh, into a message that I want to bring um, with you today. Um, there's a definition that is descriptive of a Christian I read that I, I find is really interesting. It says this, a Christian is completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. <laughs> now, if you are truly living the Christian life, there ought to be an element of danger. There should be an element of trouble because the Lord said, the gospel is going to offend. So if we are delivering the gospel like we should be, there's going to be an element of, of offense, and with that, an element of danger. But it's not just about being in trouble. We can be completely fearless. We can be continually cheerful, even though there may be times that we are in trouble. And nobody typifies this, in my mind, better than the Apostle Paul. And here in Acts chapter 19, we're going to be looking into a story um, of how he was in the town of Ephesus and how some neat things were going on, but then there was some trouble. Um, when Paul came to Ephesus, as we see here in Acts 19, he found, it that, the, he found that the city was locked into this pagan superstition. There was, there was a cult. There were depraved, miserable people that were practicing black magic and voodoo and, and the dark arts. There was demonism. There's... There's powers of evil absolutely entrenched in this city. As we'll talk about a little bit. The, this, the worship in their temple was full of all kinds of debauchery. I mean, there was, it was, they had a religion, but it was a religious cult of debauchery. But Paul attacked that stronghold with the most powerful weapons ever known. The weapon of truth. The weapon of love, of righteous behavior, and of faith that he expressed in prayer almost single-handedly at first he attacked it but 
Before long, there was a little band of Christians that gathered around him, and it began to swell and spread all throughout the province of Asia. And he began to attack the stronghold, and within two years, it was demolished. It was over and done with. The result was that they had this great bonfire in Ephesus. People brought their books of black magic, their astrological charts, their Ouija boards, all these these different things that they were using in this occultic practice, they brought them to the center, of the center of the city and had a huge bonfire there, throwing all those things on the fire. It looked as if Paul's work was over. The Marines had landed, the beachhead had been secured, so it was time for Paul to move on. And as you see here, we're, as we read in Acts chapter 19, in fact, let's, let's start in verse 21. Well, actually, start in verse 20. So it says in Acts 19, 20, says, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Okay, Paul had victory. Verse 21, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Acacia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he said, Okay, I'm going to go through these cities to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. Verse 22, So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a season. Okay? So as you read these, these verses here, you can see the first point I want to make to you today. Paul's heart is occupied. You can see it in these verses. At this time, there were three things that occupied his heart. It moved him to take this action. The first thing was that he was, wanted to disciple the new Christians who had come to Christ in Macedonia. Now, I, and by the way, on your uh, bulletin, I didn't give an outline ahead of time, but there's some, some lines there, and hopefully my, the outline is clear enough here on the, uh, the uh, screen. So if you want to take notes, you can. But So his, his heart is occupied, first of all, with trying to disciple these young believers, these new Christians who had come to Christ in Macedonia and Greece and Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, Athens, Corinth. He wanted to impart to them truth. He knew far better than even we know in our day. And what we seem to have forgotten, that the beginning of the Christian life is not enough. You have to learn to live in the power of the Spirit. You will have heaven. You will have God as your Father. You will have some joy, some peace. But you will be an ineffective Christian if you have not been taught, if you do not continue to learn and grow. And that was... Paul's heart was occupied with this thought. We've got all, we've had this great victory. We've had all these new believers, and I need to start traveling, getting through here, so we can start growing these people. Because yes, the fact that they turned their lives over to Christ is great, but they have got to continue to grow and continue to experience the joy and the peace, even in the midst of the danger of Christianity. So he longed to teach them the truth and it, that would set them free. But the second thing that occupied Paul's heart was his intense desire for the gospel to be expanded. He wanted the gospel to penetrate to the very center of the Roman Empire. He said, I have got to get to Rome. He wants that gospel to be planted because he has seen what it did in Ephesus. It overthrew the powers of darkness there. In fact, he says, after I've been to Jerusalem, I must see Rome. Dr. Campbell Morgan says this. When he says, I must see Rome, it's not the must of the tourist. I mean, I've got to go see Rome. Have you seen I mean, the, the, the Colosseums and, and all the beautiful things there? That's not the must he's talking about. It is the must of the missionary that he's talking about. Paul said, I must get to Rome. I must 
penetrate the very center of this empire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the very journey which he will soon commence, when he comes to Corinth, he will take time to actually write that great epistle, the epistle of Romans that we, that we hold so dear in our New Testament. So he's, he's writing that so as to help, even though he's, he's kept back from getting there, his plan is to get there, but it's kept back there. So he's going to write this epistle to try to at least start the, the, the gospel being penetrated into the very heart of the Roman Empire. But he's, going, he's determined that he's going to get there. So he was occupied with wanting to disciple Christians. He was occupied with the furtherance of the gospel. And the third thing here is, it's kind of, a, Luke is the author here of the book of Acts, and it's sort of suggested, but his third thing that occupies his heart is helping those that are in need. It's a desire of his heart to help the famine-stricken saints at the church of Jerusalem. There was a great famine in the land of Judea in those days, and the Christians were very hungry. And Paul longed to minister to them, to help them meet their needs. So he sent, you see there in verse 22, he sent, two very faithful companions, Timothy and Erastus, and he sent them into Macedonia. Now, we're not told here why, but in, in 1 Corinthians 16, we are, and I'll read that here in just a second. He was, he's wanting to tell the churches about the need of the church in Jerusalem. Go through Macedonia. Timothy, Erastus, go through. Tell them what's going on. Collect an offering for them in advance so that when the apostle came, when he got to the church of Jerusalem or if he could send it ahead, he would send some relief. He, he even mentions it in 1 Corinthians 16. He says this in verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Now listen. And when I come, whosoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality to Jerusalem. And if it be me also, I shall go with them. He's saying, I'm going to send this to Jerusalem. And if it's God's will, I'm going to go and be in Jerusalem also. And then hopefully go on into Rome. So he was occupied. His heart is occupied with these three things. We also, in these, in these three areas that Paul's heart was occupied, we see a way to settle ourselves even though Christianity is dangerous. Like I said, the, the title is Christianity is Dangerous. But in these three things, how's, how, how can you settle your heart when you are hopefully living the dangerous Christian life? It's in these three things. Be concerned about growing people. Be concerned about spreading the gospel. Be concerned about meeting people's needs. And if you are living a dangerous Christian life, those are the things that get you through those tough times. And Paul is demonstrating that force in this passage. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 to 9, I won't take time to read it, but after he talked about... I'm going to take this offering, we're going to send it to Jerusalem, and if God wills, I'm going to come in behind it to Jerusalem. He goes on to say that it was his plan to stay into Ephesus until the day of Pentecost. But something happened that changed his mind. And Luke tells us here, look at verse 23 there of chapter 19 of Acts. And at the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. If you're doing those things that you're supposed to do, Seeing people disciples, seeing people come to know Christ, taking care of needs, it's going to cause a stir. Verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made the silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. Okay? So this guy made these little, these little idols to the goddess Diana. Verse 25, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, sirs, 
You know that by this craft we have our wealth. He said, this is how we make our money. 26, moreover, you see in here that not alone to Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people saying that there be no gods which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. So he's saying, hey, listen, guys, this guy, Paul, he's messing with our livelihood. You know, we make our living off of this. And now he's saying, there's no gods that are made with hands. He's attacking the very heart of what we're doing. So Paul, his plan is to move on, but God changes his plan. The silversmiths at Ephesus had been organized into this trade unit, and they found that they were being hit hard in the most sensitive part of the human anatomy, the wallet. The story goes of a man who saw his friend, and he said, he was just gloomy. And his friend said, what's, what's going on? He said, my wife has just made me a millionaire. He said, so what? Why is that such a big deal? He said, I used to be a multimillionaire. <laughs> he was being hit in the most sensitive part of the anatomy, the pocketbook. And that's what these guys were saying. They're, they're taking money out of our pockets, these guys. These silversmiths, they made these, these souvenirs to this goddess Diana. Their business was being diminished. People were becoming Christians. They didn't want these shrines anymore. So Demetrius, the union boss, if you will, okay, if you have in your mind what the union boss is, you know, the crooked nose and that kind of thing, that's Demetrius. And so he's getting his guys together, and he's, 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 he doesn't care anything about the welfare of the people of his town. The hundreds who had become Christians had found freedom from all this and joined Christ. All he saw was red ink, the loss of profit, and he was very concerned about that. Sounds kind of familiar in our day, doesn't it? There's, you all know of the group Planned Parenthood. And there have been charges against them about profiting off of the sacrifice of innocent human life. They, they, don't, they don't give the young ladies all the information. And not only that, there have been accusations about them even taking these, the body parts of these precious children and profiting off of them. It's no different in Paul's day as it was today. People are concerned about their pocketbook. And when we live the dangerous Christian life, and it says, hey, that's wrong. Or maybe not even, hey, that's wrong, but hey, check this out. You may not be railing against anybody. You may just be saying, hey, look at this way. And that's what Paul did. Paul was not railing against them. He just saying, hey, look at this. And people were being turned to that. And we say, we, we have these, these um, clinics where we can take young ladies and say, hey, listen, let's give you an ultrasound. Let's let you look at what's going on here. Give you at least another option. Maybe we can do something to help you. And people are like, wait a second. You're evil. You're taking away their right to choose. But it's hitting them in the pocketbook. And that's what Paul was dealing with here. Second point. Let's see here how Demetrius' mind is absolutely oblivious. There's a profound revelation of mob psychology in the account Luke gives us. For after all, you cannot arouse a mob to defend your interest if all you can say is that you haven't been making as much money as you used to make. 
That may be of interest to you, but it's not of the interest of other people. They don't care whether you made any money or not. If it's not hurting their pocketbook, but it was the lack of revenue was what stirred the silversmiths. They were disturbed by their loss of income, but since no one will defend you on that basis, Demetrius had to add another charge. It was emotionally loaded, deliberately induced, and aroused the citizenry. And in that, we'll see how his mind is absolutely oblivious. The charge was that the religion of the city was threatened. That Diana, the goddess the city worshipped, was insulted by this loss of income, was in danger of losing her stature in the eyes of the world. Dianus was the goddess enshrined in a great temple outside of Ephesus. And that temple, as we understand, the, the temple of Diana, or some of you may know the temple of Artemis. Diana and Artemis, that's interchangeable names. But it was one of the seven wonders of the world. So she was carved apparently from a meteorite because later on the town clerks remind people that her image had fallen from the sky. So this image was carved from a meteorite, and they say it fell from the sky from the gods. Okay, and so she, the, the religion there was one of absolute debauchery. I mean, the figure of Diana was a, was a multiple-breasted woman, and there, was, there were temple prostitutes, all these things that went on in the worship there in Ephesus. I mean, when you're talking about the darkness that was over the top of the city and that Paul was able to penetrate, that was amazing. But in attacking Diana, what Demetrius is saying here, you're attacking our mother. It wasn't just a matter of, hey, I'm losing some bucks. He's getting the crowd, the people in Ephesus riled up and saying, they're attacking our mother. I mean, what's, what's more, more noble than mom and apple pie? I mean, that, we see it in our country. Anytime somebody wants to, to rouse up a group, you start throwing out symbols of, of Americana, and they're attacking these symbols of Americana. That's what is going on here with Demetrius. He's trying to get this, this crowd riled up. So these riot engineers in Ephesus, and they knew exactly what they were doing, knew what would arouse emotions. Same thing today. We see it in our society, that they know what will arouse emotions against Christianity. People understand that. They, could, they knew in Ephesus they could stir up this, this whole city with this idea. This was the season of the year when Ephesus gave itself over to a whole month of feasting and revelry and debauchery, centering on this worship, this, this debased worship of this, of this goddess. And it, had to, it was kind of like Mardi Gras on steroids. If you want to get, that's, that's what they were doing. And, but it was worship. It wasn't just Mardi Gras. Think, take, take the worst thing you can imagine in New Orleans Mardi Gras, and that was their worship. This city was packed with people who had come for this special occasion. There are two very interesting, revealing things about Demetrius' speech that shows how oblivious he really was. Okay. First of all, he was really unaware of how ridiculous his charge sounded. If this Diana is so great and the whole world worships her, so he said that there in verse 27, the whole world worships her, then why is she not able to defend herself against this attack? I mean, he's oblivious. If she's the great goddess that came from the sky, the meteorite, why can't she just deal with it herself? If her power is so great that she commands the worship of mankind, why does she need these people to support her? Why does she need this group to get all riled up and everything? when she's this great goddess. No one ever seems to face those kinds of questions. Even today, people don't seem to face those kinds of questions when you're raising issues like this. So the second thing he's oblivious about is that he was blind to the significance of the way by which his trade had been ruined. 
his trade had not been openly attacked by Christians. Paul never said anything against the religion of Ephesus. He never denounced the temple and no way tried to attack the pagan superstition. In fact, the town clerk, as we'll see here in a little bit, will openly admit that these were not blasphemers of the goddess. They were not robbers of the temple. The town mayor, the guy who's in charge of town, even admits that. They're not attacking us. This is very interesting because there was nothing negative about their approach. These early Christians didn't go around faulting paganism. They simply introduced a positive new faith of such tremendous power, of such fantastic reality that when anybody experienced, their old life was wiped out. They weren't, they weren't told, this is wrong, this is right, take this. They were just shown, this is right. And they said, I want that. That's the dangerous Christian life we should be living. We should be saying, telling people, this is what you need. That's what these, these life clinics do for young ladies. This is an option. This is what you need to save that young child's life. Men and women who were sunk in darkness and superstition, gripped by fear, they found what Paul was saying about Jesus Christ. They found it so loving so genuine, so joyful that their empty paganism was simply did not measure up. That's what we need to be offering in this dangerous Christian life. There was time when a direct attack against evil is necessary. But even in those times, how we address it is as important as what we say. There's a, a phrase that Thomas Chalmers says. It says, we need to present to them the expulsive power of new affection. Give them a new affection that it expels all the darkness. Luke continues on his account in this mob. Look there in verse 28. When they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. The disciples saying, Don't do it, Paul. Verse 31. And a certain chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not whereof they were come together. They didn't have any idea why they were there other than the people were just going crazy. Let's go here and start yelling and screaming. Sound familiar? See demonstrations? People go out there, why are you demonstrating? I don't know. Human nature has changed so much in these years. That theater that they went to was able to seat about 20,000 people. The people were very responsive to this, this appeal. I mean, people, they saw what was going on. Hey, let's go, let's, let's get, get involved. Let's, let's see what's going on. But despite this mob mentality, we see the third thing. The fact that God is in control is obvious. Paul knows this. And it gives them courage. The dangerous Christian life, don't ever think in the midst of the danger, God is not in control. Paul knew this and it gave him courage. Christian, do you know that? Does that give you courage? The reason we can have courage living the dangerous Christian life is because we know God is in control. Paul wanted to go in and speak to him. What an insight to his fearless bravery. He knew God was in control. 
he was not hesitant to take a, a, on a crowd like this, but his friends recognized that the mood of the crowd was ugly. Even the leaders, the political rulers in the province of Asian, they, Asia, they were responsible to the Romans. They were friends of Paul. They were concerned, and they said, don't, don't do it. Don't go into the theater. That's interesting. These were not Christians. These were political leaders in Asia that had ties to Rome, and yet they were Paul's friends. They said, Paul, don't go into that arena. It's not safe. Paul had made friends with the political leaders in his area, with those who were out and about in his community. They understood and were impressed by the message of Christ. Luke does not tell us here in Acts if they were Christians, but they were favorably inclined to Paul and tried to protect him from this mob. So Luke then goes on to show how impossible it would have been for Paul to have quieted them. Look at verse 33. It says, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with his hand that, and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, Greatest Diana of the Ephesians. So for two hours, Greatest Diana of the Ephesians. Greatest Diana of the Ephesians. For two hours hours. That's how unruly this mob was, and yet Paul knew God is in control. They chant over and over again, this slogan, it, it, it aroused their, their nationalistic pride, it fed their egos, it, it, it swelled their emotions. The Jews were concerned because they had lived in the city for many years and were known to be opposed to the worship of idols. They had a synagogue and made it clear that they were not idol worshipers and they did not approve of this practice. We're talking about the Jews, not the Christians. They had no effect on the populace. It's interesting. The Jews were there, had a synagogue, and yet nothing was different about Ephesus. Paul comes in, in the space of two years, turns everything up on its head. They stood for the right cause the Jews did, but without any power to affect others. But they were afraid that they were going to be implicated in this disturbance. So they, 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 they pushed out Alexander, a Jewish coppersmith, and have him try to explain their attitude, make clear they were not the ones that were prompting all this. But the crowd refuses to hear Alexander and drowns him out, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. For two hours, they're yelling this and going on and going on and going on. All you have to do is, I want my rights. I want what I'm due. This is not fair. This is not right. And you see scenes similar today. The Ephesian society worshiped Diana. The culture of this world is to worship self. But in the middle of this, we see again how obvious it is that God is in control because he uses an unlikely tool to quiet this mob. When the crowd gets to the point where its emotions have been so short-circuited that its reasoning power is lost, it's in a very dangerous state. The leaders were quite correct in their concern for Paul because with just the slightest suggestion, the crowd could have been sent raging through the streets, demolishing everything in their path. But we see how God uses an unlikely tool to quiet this mob. It was finally quieted down by the town clerk. He was basically the mayor of, of Ephesus. The mayor of Ephesus, who has a 
vested political interest in the, in the people of the town being, being happy, liking him. And yet, God uses him to quiet this mob down. Look at verse 35. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how the city of Ephesus is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana, and the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. He's saying, we know this. Why are you bellyaching? Verse 37, for you brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of the church, nor blasphemers of your goddess. He's saying, these men have said nothing against Diana. Verse 38, wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have made a matter against any man, the law is open. There are deputies. Let them plead one another. But if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called into question for this day's uproar. He's saying, Rome's going to start looking at us. There being no cause whereby we can give account for this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. The town clerk, we don't know who he is, but he's a person of esteem. He's a, obviously a politician, a great orator, because he uses his words to quiet the crowd. The crowd, they were exhausted. They've been yelling for two hours. He finally gets up there. He he's, calms them down and sets forth three very logical points here. He says, Yes, Diana is great. There's no need to shout about it. Nobody's going to overthrow the guys as great as ours. He's basically saying what Demetrius didn't say. She's so great, she can defend herself. Everybody knows that. Two, secondly, he says, these men, they've done nothing to provoke this. They've said nothing against this. They haven't blasphemed her. They haven't made any charges against her. They have not robbed us. They haven't been sacrilegious. So why handle this in any way other than ordinary channels. He said, the courts are open. So let's, let's just send them off to the courts. The third thing he says, that we are in serious danger of losing our freedom. Let's skip on down to the last point. Chapter 20, verse 1, really is the end of the story. The chapter division should probably be at verse 2. Chapter 20, verse 1 says this. After the uproar ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples, embraced them, and departed for to go into Macedonia. Paul teaches an object lesson here. He, he's, he's, he's anxious to explain this whole affair. There's something he doesn't want them to miss, so he calls them together and exhorts them. Luke does not tell us what that exhortation is, but we may have a clue in first, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I don't have it for the screen, but if you want to turn there, you can. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8 probably gives us an idea of what Paul said to them. Now, different scholars, they have different opinions on whether or not this is the case, but it's, it's very likely this is the case. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.8, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia. We were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of our life. We were pressed out of measure above our strength, excuse me, the spirit of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. They were in a dangerous situation, but Paul knew God was in control, and he said, listen, let me teach you a little something right now. 
We, were just, we thought our lives, we were in Asia, we thought our lives were going to be in danger, but we knew God raised Jesus from the dead. He could handle 20,000 rioters. Put yourself back where the apostle was in this tremendous uproar. A threatening circumstance. It appeared that the gospel had triumphed in Ephesus, that Paul was thinking about leaving. He'd been there two years. It triumphed, thinking about leaving. Then all of a sudden, this riot occurs, and it seems to have threatened the entire cause of Christ, the entire two years he invested. And they put Christians in great jeopardy, great danger. Paul was crushed and distressed. He said, we were, we were pressed down. We were crushed. He said his very life was in danger. This, this crowd was so wild, so uncontrollable. He couldn't see any way out. It looked as if he had reached the end of the road. But once again, look there in 2 Corinthians 1, 9. He says that we should not trust in ourselves, but God which raises the dead. This is the very heart of the Christian message. As Paul goes on to explain in 2 Corinthians, in, in, in chapter 3, he goes on to explain, he says, our sufficiency is not of ourselves in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. So he's, he's taking this and he's using it not only as an object lesson to the people in Ephesus, but when he writes to the church in, Corinthian, in Corinth in 2 Corinthians, he's saying, let me tell you about this story, what happened to us. And we learned this, that our sufficiency isn't of ourselves. Nothing came from us. Everything came from God. God alone is able. And without any human reckoning, any human intervention, any human resources, he is able. And his explanation to those young converts in, in Ephesus, and then later on as he used it as an example to the people in Corinth, was unquestionably along this line. God has allowed this event to happen in order to teach us that he is able to handle things when they get far beyond human control far beyond where we're able to, to wrap our heads around it, wrap our arms around it, and say, I got this understood. He's got it under control. And that's what living the dangerous Christian life is all about. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.10. Who, talking about, who, about God, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver. Not just he delivered, he keeps on doing it. In whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Ye also helping together by prayer for us that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. What a great awareness the apostle had of the fantastic strength of the body of Christ. Working together, praying together, supporting one another, upholding each other in prayer, calling each other into action through the mighty power of God's resurrection. He can work through the most unexpected instruments to quiet any situation. To hold a crowd at bay, to stop the surging emotionalism of people where reason has been short-circuited. To bring a whole affair to nothing. That is the might of our God. Completely fearless, continually cheerful, constantly in trouble. Those are the three phrases I used to describe the Christian life at the beginning of our message. If we are living right, sharing the good news of the gospel, and challenging the falsehoods of this world with truth, we will be in trouble. However, we can be completely fearless because, as we saw with the mayor of Ephesus, God is in control. God can use whatever he wants, however he wants, to handle a situation. Both those who know him and those who do not, he can use. He can use anyone in any situation to complete his purpose. He can use anyone. You're anyone. 
in any situation. There may be something God's challenging you to step out, to live a little more dangerously in your Christian life. He can use anybody in any situation to accomplish his purposes. We can be cheerful because the hope that we have of heaven. I tell my kids this. Jake and Reagan can tell you. The worst thing that can happen to me is not death. I'm going to be in heaven. Not because I'm standing up here preaching. But because there came a time in my life where I understood I'm a sinner. I can't make it to heaven on my own. I've got to trust in what Jesus Christ did. And so I can be confident that even though I might be called to live the dangerous Christian life, my hope is secure. My eternity is settled. That's what I want you to take from this. We need to learn from Paul and these Ephesian Christians that we may come into times of danger, pressure, and trouble. Difficulties will suddenly strike our lives. The pressures we may have to go through, the catastrophes that come roaring unexpectedly in our life out of the blue may drop us to our knees. But they are sent in order that we may not rely on ourselves, but on God. Paul said, he raised the dead. You don't think he can handle what you're going through? You don't think that he can use you in a greater way in your Christian life than you've ever been used before? He raised the dead. Of course he can do it. Bow our heads, please.